My name is Dean Osuch. I'm one of the campus pastors, and I am so glad that online Rockbridge, you have tuned in and to hear this message that God has placed on my heart. I'm so excited to share this message with you, but before I do, many of you don't know me. You don't know my salvation story. You don't know my calling. And uh, so before we dive into God's word, I really want you to get a sense of who I am. Uh, I was born and raised in Newtown, Connecticut. Newtown is kind of like the northern version of a Dalton community. The reason why I love Newtown and Dalton, the town in which I live in, is because we are a small town that thinks we're a large town, and I just love that mentality. I love that vibe. I love Dalton. I'm home. Ironically enough, when I was in high school, Newtown was known as Soccer Town USA, and here as an adult, Dalton is known as Soccer Town USA. Well, I was born and raised in a non-Christian home. Uh, at the time, in 1984, there was one Osuch who was following Jesus. The rest of our, my fairly large family did not know Jesus. As a child, Jesus' name was used as a curse word. Occasionally, we would go to church because that's what good people are supposed to do. They're supposed to go to church. But we just merely went out of tradition, so it was very boring, and I really never wanted to go to church. But when I was in fifth grade, a family friend invited me to an Awana program. Awana is a boys and girls Bible club where you go and you study scripture and you play games and crafts. And at this Awana, I heard the gospel for the very first time. And I remember driving home that night, Mrs. Michaels, the family friend, asked me a question. She said, Dean, do you want to be sure you're going to heaven? And I said, absolutely. And she led me in a believer's prayer where I surrendered my life to Jesus. I made Jesus my Lord and Savior, the forgiver and leader of my life, and my life radically changed. I went from death to life. I went from hating people to loving people. I went from not knowing anything about God, wanting to know all I can about God. My life radically changed. And I remember my next memory after my salvation was running to my father and saying, Dad, you need to give your life to Jesus because if you were to die today without him, you will go to hell. Not effective evangelism there. It lacked a lot of tact. I have since grown and matured in my faith where I share the gospel in a much more tactful way. But you can tell that right from the beginning, I had a heart, a desire to see people come to know Jesus. Well, fast forward to my college years. I went to college at Cedarville College in Ohio, and I was getting my criminal justice degree. And in my last year of getting my degree, I scored high enough to go to the FBI Academy. But during that last season of my life in college, God spoke to my heart and impressed upon me that in order to make this world a better place, it's not putting people into jail, but learning how to transform the heart of the individual. So God led me to seminary, but I had a critical decision to make, whether to go to seminary and become a pastor or to go to the FBI Academy, and I made the wisest decision in my life. I decided to go to seminary, and my life has been an adventure ever since that decision. Well, that's enough about me. I want to dig into God's word. And we've been looking at this crown series in the book, 1 Samuel, and we're learning so much within this book. 
Now, I'm a little bit of a history war buff, and so God led me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. As we know, there's an ongoing battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's been going on for decades and decades. And God allows us to see one of these many battles in 1 Samuel 14. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this battle and we will discover together that there are four steps we can take in getting ground for the king. And so let's just look at this story and then we'll go back and pick it apart. But it's in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. That same day, Saul's son, Jonathan, said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. So let's pause here for a moment. Here's Jonathan. He's the son of King Saul. He's best friends with David. We continue on the story in verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I find that a very interesting statement in God's word. Is God's word perhaps pointing us to Jesus and the disciples? Maybe. It's interesting to think about. We continue on the story. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I'm completely with you. I love that devotion of the armor bearer. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They'll let themselves, they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. Little did they know they were going to be taught the lesson. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer. For the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half acre of field. Pretty interesting story. This battle is fascinating, but we see the four steps they took to take that ground for the king. The first thing we see is that they were partners. They were partners in ministry to get a piece of land for the king. Jonathan did not fight this battle by himself. He brought his trusted friend, his trusted warrior friend, the armor bearer with him. And I think of the armor bearer often, and my first thought was when I think of the armor bearer, is a weak little guy holding the shield because he's not strong enough to fight. But in the biblical days, the armor bearer was a seasoned warrior. He was strong. He was buff. He was the type of guy that you would want on your team. And Jonathan, with his wisdom, brought this armor bearer on his team to partner with him to accomplish this goal. 
When we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus is God with flesh on. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge and power, he did not do ministry alone. He built his life into 12 men and partnered with them in ministry. See, within Christianity, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We are not meant to do ministry alone. Now, if you've been coming to Rockbridge and watching Rockbridge and involved in the ministries of Rockbridge for months, if not years, if you've ever felt alone, I hate to say this and, and hear my heart on this, it's kind of your fault. Because here at Rockbridge, we have so many small groups for you to be a part of. Oh, Dean, you don't understand. I tried a small group and it didn't work out for me. Th then try another one. Oh, I did. I tried a second group. It still didn't work. Then try another one. We weren't meant to go through this life alone. And if we want to be more like Jesus, we have to look at Jesus and follow his example. He did ministry with people. When God created this world in six days and rested on that seventh day, everything he made, he said it was good. Except there was one thing before the fall that wasn't good. It wasn't good for man to be alone. And therefore he created woman. Thank goodness. We need women. We weren't meant to go through this world alone. We're not an island I was watching uh, the movie Castaway the other night with my wife, Deborah. And if you've never seen the movie, spoiler alert, uh, Tom Hanks crashes on a deserted island and he's there for four years. Now, you introverts are probably like, oh, that sounds like heaven. No, it wasn't. Him being on that island for four years did him a lot of harm. If you go through life by yourself, it will not only have a a negative impact spiritually, but it'll have a negative impact in your life socially, physically, mentally. Jesus had 12 disciples, and he had three guys, his inner circle, that he really did a lot of ministry with. As we think about taking ground for the king of kings, we need to partner with somebody, a group, a body of believers, somebody to accomplish what God has called us to do. Here at Rockbridge, we talk a lot about membership and going all in. And we talk about next step cards all the time. And in our next step card, if you look at it, it'll say, become a member slash partner. See, Rockbridge, we need you. We need you. And you need Rockbridge. What a great church to partner with in ministry. The second thing we see here is the vision for ministry. See, Jonathan had a vision to get ground for the king. And we see this in 1 Samuel 14, 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these, un these uh, uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He had a vision he had a God vision to take ground for the king. So what's your vision for your life? What's the vision that God has placed on your heart? 
Proverbs 29, 18 says this, without a revelation, people run wild, but one who follows divine instruction will be happy. The King James Version says it this way, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. I mentioned how I was born and raised in Newtown, Connecticut. In Newtown, during the winters, we get about 25 to 50 inches of snow every winter. So far this year, I think we're at 27 inches. But when I was a little boy, I would pray, God, let it snow six inches. The reason being is that in Newtown, if it snowed six inches, they would cancel school. If it was five inches or less, we probably had school. Here in Dalton, if it snowed five inches, we'd be out for a week. But in Newtown, five inches meant school. Six inches, they would cancel school. So every time a storm would come, God, let it pray six inches. But not only that, but see, I was the youngest of three brothers. And my brothers liked to play tackle football. And I was the runt in the family. And to this day, my brothers are much bigger than I. And we play tackle football all the time. And when you play tackle football in six inches of snow, when you get tackled into the snow, it doesn't hurt as much. So sure enough, I prayed and God answered my prayer one day and seven inches of snow fell, which meant no school. My oldest brother, he was the mastermind behind the football playing. And so he told me and my middle brother to make boundary markers in the snow, to make these lines in the snow. And so my middle brother, he started first, and he, he made his line in the snow this way. He had his head down, and he was making his line in the snow. And then he saw a, snick, a stick over in the playing field, and he went over, and he grabbed this stick, and he threw it away, and then he kind of got back into his line again and started off making his line in the snow. And then he came across some yellow snow, which isn't a good thing in Connecticut, and so he made his line around the yellow snow, got back in line again a little bit, and then he started going, and then he would yell at me about something, hey, Dean, pick up those sticks, and by the time my brother was making, done making his line in the snow, the line was in every direction. The line was useless. I mean, there were parts of the line that we could have used for the boundaries, but most of it we couldn't use at all because he was all over the place. But for me, what I did was, I, this is how I made my line of the snow. My dad had put a stake in the ground earlier that fall. And I kept my eye on that stake in the ground. And I started to make my line. I wasn't looking at my feet. I was looking at that stake. I didn't care about the sticks on the playing field because I can get those later on. I didn't even really care about the yellow snow. Well, I cared a little bit about the yellow snow, so I'd make my line. My brother would yell at me, I wouldn't pay him any attention until I got to that stake and I turned around and my line was straight. What's your stake in the ground? What's your vision of ministry? You see, when you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus had a stake in the ground, it's called the cross. That was his vision, that was his mission to die on that cross, to pay for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to die for our sins. That's how much he loves us. 
And he would not get distracted at all from that mission. And, and, and when we read God's word, we see that he was attacked by Satan and trying to tempt him, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. He was tempted. He never believed the lies of the enemy. And even on the night in which he was betrayed, he was praying in the garden. And he says, not my will, oh God, but your will be done. I've been to Israel five or six times, and, and Jerusalem is a beautiful city, but right outside of Jerusalem, it's a desert wilderness. In fact, where Jesus prayed, if you went up over the hill, you would enter the desert wilderness, and to this day, people go into the wilderness to disappear, to be forgotten, to hide. Jesus didn't run away from his mission. He ran toward it for you and for me. What's your vision for ministry? See, I talk to a lot of people inside the church and outside the church, and a lot of times I hear people's vision either for their life or for, their, for a season. And oftentimes, in the Christian world and non-Christian world, it involves getting more money, getting more things, fulfilling pleasures in their lives, and their vision involves power, pleasures, and possessions. And I promise you, I promise you, if you chase that, if that's your vision, it will lead you empty and broken and wanting more. It never, ever satisfies. The only thing that satisfies is when you accomplish things for God. God has a plan and purpose for your life. He wants you to accomplish things for him. And when you go after that, that's when you get fulfilled. See, God plus, plus nothing else equals security and identity and purpose. Our Father up in heaven gave us talents and abilities to be used for him. And when we use those for him, it blesses other people and God gets the glory. And in that cycle, we get blessed. We get blessed by using the gifts he has already given us. So in your vision of ministry, use your gifts and talents for him. Here at Rockbridge, we exist to glorify God by connecting people from all walks of life to life in Christ. Man, that's a vision I can grab a hold of. Personally, this is my personal mission statement. I want God to use my life to draw people to Jesus. That's my stake in the ground. That's my vision. I pray that you have a godly vision because that's when you feel fulfilled, joy-filled, and that's when you have purpose and meaning. The, second thing we, the third thing we see is that Jonathan and the armor bearer had a plan for ministry. It was an unusual plan, but it was a plan nonetheless. I'll just summarize it real quick. Hey, we'll, we'll show ourselves to the Philistines. If they say, hey, we're going to come down to you, Jonathan and the armor bearer knew that they were in deep trouble. If the Philistines said, hey, come on up to us, they knew that they were going to win this battle. It was an unusual plan, but it was a plan nonetheless. Jonathan and the armor bearer had complete trust with each other. You know, Jesus had a plan as well. What he did was he built his life around 12 men. And those 12 men ended up turning the world upside down. You know, I gave my life to Jesus because I believed that there was a loving God that wanted to have a relationship with me through Jesus Christ. 
And as I've grown in the faith, as I've studied God's word, as I've looked at church history, the more I learn about God, the more my faith is grounded. And one of the key reasons why I, I feel I am grounded in my faith, yes, what Jesus did for on the cross, absolutely. But it was the ministry of those 12 disciples. It's interesting to me that when they arrested Jesus, these 12 guys, these, this motley group, group of men, they were terrified. Jesus was in the grave and they were in hiding, fearing for their lives. But then a few days later, all of a sudden, these guys were emboldened. They were sharing the gospel. They were ministering to people. What happened? They saw the resurrected Christ and it changed their lives. You know, people say that many will die for a lie that they thought was true. But nobody in their right mind would be willing to die for a lie that they knew was a lie. And yet all these disciples who were accused of stealing the body of Christ, coming up with this hoax, all of them, 10 of them, died a martyr's death. Judas betrayed Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. The others died for their faith. You think that if they stole the body, if they created this hoax, one of the 10 guys would have said, hey, hey, I made it up. I, we, we made it up. But all of them died because they saw the resurrected Christ. When we look at the disciples, they're the church. If you're part of the body of Christ, you're the church. You're the plan A. There's no other plan B to get the message out. God has called us, the church, to be the plan A, to get the gospel to a world that desperately needs hope. There's no other option. It's us. We're the plan A. Jesus' plan involved sacrifice. He ultimately sacrificed himself on that cross for us. Here, as we live out the Christian life and we come up with a plan to do great things for God, to make him famous, it's going to require sacrifice on our part. A sacrifice of treasures, sacrifice of talent, sacrifice of time. But at the end of the day, it'll be worth it. Here at Rockbridge, we love God, love others, and live sent. That's the plan. One of my heroes of the faith was William Booth. William Booth was a great man of God who founded the Salvation Army. He died in 1912, and Salvation Army continues strong to this day. In fact, in Dalton, we have a Salvation Army branch. It's an internationally known ministry that's very well respected. They minister to people who are hurting. They minister to people who are lost. And because of this ministry, millions, millions upon millions of people have been impacted. Well, in 1912, William Booth, this great man of God, he was on his deathbed, and he was surrounded by some family members and friends. And before he passed away, he wrote a note, and he gave this note to his son. After he did that, a few moments passed, and this great man of God, William Booth, left earth and entered heaven to be with Jesus for all eternity. People were mourning, they were sad. And then everybody was wondering, what did this great man of God, 
want to communicate to his son. The son opened up that note and read it, and all of a sudden he just started weeping. On that piece of paper was one word. The word was others. See, William Booth had a plan. Love God, love others, and he lived sent. That was his plan. Brothers, sisters in Christ were the plan to share the greatest message in the world to this world in need. Finally, as we look at this battle, Jonathan and the armor bearer, they execute the plan. We see this in 1 Samuel 14, 13, and 14. They take the land. They take that piece of ground for the king. See, it's good to have a partner in ministry. It's good to have a vision for ministry. It's good to have a plan for ministry. But until we execute the plan and actually do it, it's simply a dream. But when we put the plan into action, the dream becomes a reality. I would imagine that for Jonathan and the armor bearer, the hardest step they had to take was to show themselves to the Philistines. I bet that was the hardest step they had to take. And then when the Philistines said, hey, come on up to us, that next step wasn't so hard. And the next one wasn't, wasn't harder less and less until they won the victory. If you want to do something great for God to make him famous, to expand his kingdom, to take ground for the king of kings, you're going to have to deal with fear. It happens every single time you want to do something significant for God. Back at, back at my um, hometown, Newtown, growing up, we had a, a neighborhood pool where all the kids would go. All the families would go to this one pool. We just had one. And it had a deep end and it had a shallow end. And at nine years old, I still didn't know how to swim, so I had to spend my time in the shallow end of the pool, which was lame because everybody was in the deep end of the pool. They had the diving board over there. They had the sliding board. They had all the teenagers, and here I am, nine-year-old Dean, not knowing how to swim, staying in the shallow end of the pool. Not only that, but I had rubber duck floaties. I had a life vest on. I mean, there was no way I was going to drown. And when I started bobbing over to the deep end of the pool, my brothers would yell at me to stay in the shallow end. So there was no way I was going to drown. I was completely safe. Well, it was time to leave, and I took off my rubber ducky floaties and my life vest, and I started walking out the gate back home. And as I was walking outside of the gate, I heard my father call my name. He said, Dean, come over and jump into the deep end of the pool. And I turned around, and lo and behold, my dad was in the deep end of the pool, and I had this adrenaline rush. And I ran over to the deep end of the pool, and I was about to jump, and then all of a sudden, fear just filled my life. My thought was this, if I jump, will my dad catch me? And if you knew my father, you'd be having those same questions. And as I was standing there with fear, my dad was getting a little agitated with me. He said, Dean, just close your eyes and jump and I will catch you. And I remember just closing my eyes and I jumped. Guess what happened? My dad caught me. My earthly father, my dad, who's imperfect, wasn't going to let me drown. 
Our Father up in heaven calls us to jump for him, to do things for him. And initially, boy, yeah, I want to do something great for God until you live the safety of the church and you're out there in the real world. And when you want to do something great for God, I promise you, fear will come. It always does. Why? We know this to be true because the enemy wants to keep you from doing great things for God. He wants you to keep doing things for yourself and not for others, not for God. In that moment, when God calls you to jump, don't fear man, fear God. Meaning, he's, give him reverence, respect. When you hit that world and that fear comes, I encourage you to just close your eyes, say a little prayer, and jump, and see what God does. And you'll notice that your Father up in heaven and you will be doing ministry together I love coming to Rockbridge. I love this church. If I wasn't a staff member, this would be my church that I would come to worship. Because when I come to Rockbridge, I worship God through song. When I hear Matt preaching God's word, Matt's such a great communicator, I worship God through the preaching of his word. But I promise you, the closest that I've ever felt toward God is when I'm actually out there doing it. When I'm doing things for God, I feel his presence. Jump. Execute the plan. Just do it. Jonathan and the armor bearer followed a four-step process to win this battle. One, they partnered with each other in ministry. Second thing they did, they had a vision to take a piece of land for the king. They had a plan to make it happen, and then they executed it. What does that mean for you? Who's your partner in ministry? What's your personal Vision. What's your plan to make it happen? And finally, just do it. I keep on seeing this on my Facebook post. It keeps on coming up. I don't know why I'm in some type of algorithm. That the post says this, in 100 years from now, we will be completely forgotten. At the very best, we might be a distant memory. All the things that we currently own right now will be in the junkyard. At best, maybe somebody else will be using it. And a hundred years from now, all the things we did for ourselves to build ourselves up will be forgotten. The only thing that will remain are the things that we did for God. May God use you for his honor and glory. Every morning, before I come into work and start my day, there's a picture. And in the picture is a uh, wise words from Roy Lesson. And I just want you to uh, ponder these words. It means so much to me, and I, and I hope it's, it means a lot to you. So listen to these words from this, this uh, godly man. Just think, you're here not by chance, but by God's choosing. His hand formed you and made you the person you are. He compares you to no one else. You are one of a kind. You lack nothing his grace can't give you. He has allowed you to be here at this time in history to fulfill his special purposes for this generation. Let's pray.
Dear Father God, as I preach this message, my heart is convicted to do more for you. Please forgive me. Please forgive us for being so busy and chasing things that don't matter for eternity. Lord, help us chase after you. Help us love you, love others, and live sent. For at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. God, I thank you for Rockbridge and our, and our mission. Thank you so much for the number of people who will call Rockbridge their home church. Lord, I pray that we as a church, the people, would do tremendous things for you. And God, as, as I was preaching, uh, there may be somebody who's watching who has never said yes to you to start. If you've never said yes to Jesus, I encourage you to pray this believer's prayer. The prayer does not save you. Trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and how he came back to life three days later. That trust in Jesus saves you. The prayer is simply a stake in the ground. It's simply that moment of Romans 10, 9, which says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that moment that you can go back to. And if you've never had a moment with Jesus, I encourage you to pray this prayer, not out loud, but quietly in your heart to him. You can pray something like this. Dear God, I am a sinner. I have wronged you, and I am so sorry. I now turn from the wrongs that I've been chasing after and I turn to you, Jesus. Thank you so much for dying on the cross for me. And since you have died on the cross for me, I want to live for you. Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. Thank you for coming back to life again. And Father God, as I close out this time, we just want to make you famous. We want to take more ground for you. We want to make it hard for people to go to hell. Use us, Lord, for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.